seems like every two years, one group of people or another are convinced that some kind of apocalyptic event is going to take place on election day. Depending on which way the political winds are blowing, one party or another, uh, you know, is concerned that either America will be thrown backward into the dark ages or it will be finally, finally the day that the constitutional republic comes crashing down. Politicians both want that day to come and go away. Again, that all depends upon which way the political winds are kind of blowing at that time. What both parties and all parties often fail to recognize is that there is a day which has been appointed which carries with it far more implications than election day. This day that has been appointed does not merely involve those who live in the U.S. No, it involves those who live all over the globe. This day that has been appointed does not simply uh, impact what the next two years will look like and how one prepares for the next election day, but what the rest of eternity will look like. This day is the day of the Lord. It is the day in which the Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. This sobering reality is what we think about on this day from the book of Amos. May God be pleased to give us a clearer understanding of the day of the Lord so that we may be able each to live this day and every day that He gives us in light of that final day. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your copy of the Scriptures to our passage, to Amos chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 14. That's really all of chapter 6. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 768. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us of what Amos has said so far. Amos was a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah whom God called to deliver his message to the northern kingdom of Israel. The, the basic thrust of Amos' message is straightforward. Israel, because of your wickedness and sin, you will be swept away into exile. This message would undoubtedly have a twofold effect. Those who were unconcerned with the things of God would reject Amos' message and continue on in their sin. Those who believed God and His prophets would repent of their sin and depend upon God in the coming difficulty. In chapter 1, Amos announced that God would judge the nations surrounding Israel. While this prophetic prediction was true, Amos was drawing his hearers in to listen to the rest of his message. Having hooked his hearers in chapter 2, Amos told the people of Israel that if God would judge the nations, then He would certainly judge them. In chapters 3 and 4, the first part of Amos 5 explained to Israel the nature, in chapters 3 4, in the first part of Amos 5, explained to Israel the nature of their coming punishment. Their surprising stubbornness towards God's gracious call to repentance in the past and the certainty of the judgment to come. Now, good teachers will often repeat their message to make sure that their hearers get the point. And Amos' message was not one that he wanted to be lost on Israel. And so he repeated it again and again and again. Still, Amos, he never repeats his message in the same way. We can see the differences quite clearly when we contrast the first half of Amos 5 to the second half. Amos communicated his message through a hymn of lament 
in the first half of Amos 5. And in the second half of Amos 5, we get his message through a woe oracle. A woe oracle is a kind of literary device that writers deploy in order to decry sin and wickedness, as well as to announce impending doom. And that is exactly what Amos does here. In this passage, Amos decries Israel's ignorance and modesty and justice and idolatry, while at the same time announcing Jehovah's judgment. In fact, if you wanted to boil the message of this passage down into one sentence, and you wanted to take your hands out of your pockets and just write one sentence down for the rest of the sermon, you're welcome to write this one down. Amos decries Israel's ignorance and announces Jehovah's judgment. That's what this passage is about. Amos decries Israel's ignorance and announces Jehovah's judgment. And I want you to see this from the passage. So please listen as I read from Amos chapter 5, verse 18. I'm going to read through chapter 6, verse 14. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate. I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikkoth, your king, and Kenyon, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, to the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs in the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence! We must not mention the name of the Lord. 
For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house should be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Do, does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Kirinim for ourselves? For, be for behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. We're going to study this passage under two headings. First, Israel's ignorance, and second, Jehovah's judgment. And if you're taking notes, if you're that bold to have your hands out of your pockets, those two points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, Israel's ignorance. Israel's ignorance. Now, truth be told, I really wanted to entitle this point, Israel's ignorance, immodesty, indifference, injustice, and idolatry, but that's just too long. So we went with indignance as kind of an umbrella category. Um, in fact, Israel's ignorance is the first thing that we see crop up in this passage, and it does so in spectacular fashion. And by ignorance here, I mean a kind of willful ignorance. Uh, Israel is culpable for her lack of knowledge concerning God and His ways. In verses 18 through 20, we see that Israel is ignorant of what the day of the Lord will mean for them. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was a future day in which God would have victory over His enemies. At different places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the concept of the day of the Lord has multiple horizons of fulfillment. And I'll say more about this later. But for now, we simply need to recognize that from Amos' vantage point, the day of the Lord was something that was going to happen soon in Israel's history, and it would be devastating. It would be a day of darkness and not light, as he says. And darkness, as you may know, is, is often a symbol of judgment in the Bible. We see this most clearly at the cross where darkness descended upon the land as Jesus died for sinners under the judgment of God, that darkness was emblematic that He was under judgment for our sins. Now what Israel was clearly ignorant of is that due to their sin, they had become the Lord's enemies. The day of the Lord would not be one of joy for them, but of surprising dread. They might free from a lion, but they'd be caught unexpectedly like by a bear. Israel is ignorant of the fact that for them, the day of the Lord is a day of danger and defeat. And as we continue in our study, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, do I know what the day of the Lord will mean for me? Will it be darkness or light? Will it be a day of joy or gloom? Israel was ignorant of the fact that for her, the day of the Lord was to be a day of darkness and gloom. And we should not be ignorant of what our future holds, what awaits us on that day. Israel also appears to be ignorant of the Lord's perspective on her worship there in verses 21 to 23. Why does the Lord hate her feasts? Why would the Lord refuse to accept Israel's offerings? Why did He desire for their singing to go away? It's not they were particularly bad and out of tune and key. No, it's very simple. Because the people of Israel did not love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were repeating rituals while ignorant of the Lord's desire, not for mere ceremony, but for hearts that are broken and contrite for Him. Yes, the Lord had ordained these offerings and sacrifices. He had ordained the manner of worship, but He also called the people of Israel to worship Him with sincere and genuine hearts and devotion toward Him for His grace and favor that He lavished upon them. They loved everything but the Lord. They loved their luxury, 
but not the Lord. They loved themselves, but not the Lord. Sure, they did what was necessary and turned up to worship God once a week, but the other six days of the week they lived as they saw fit. They lived with complete disregard to God's justice and righteousness, that which He required of their lives each and every day. Brothers and sisters, do we, do we live this way? We all look pretty good this morning. We're pretty well dressed up. Most of us took showers this morning so that we don't smell. Is our worship to God a sweet aroma? Or is a stench of hypocrisy in His nostrils? Do you get that how you live the other six days of the week has a profound effect on your worship today? You know, all of life is worship, really. All of life is either properly worshiping God or properly, and properly giving God His honor and due in our lives or robbing Him of it. Each week, each Lord's Day, we gather together to worship Him together. And as we gather, we should pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of our Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. There's another instance of Israel's ignorance found in Amos chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. If you take a look at those verses, you'll notice that Amos utters another woe. He says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Israel is at ease, ignorant of the danger that they are in. They, they feel secure when they're anything but secure. Powerful and influential men in Israel, notable men, as Amos calls them, were a bit too big for their britches. They thought more highly of themselves than they ought, and they were wise in their own eyes. Their folly and foolishness is apparent too, and Amos calls them to look at the surrounding nations. He reminds Israel of the judgment of the surrounding nations and rhetorically asks them, are, are, are you better than these kingdoms? And the answer is, of course, no. Because of their wickedness, those nations were worthy of God's judgment. And so was Israel. Israel's ignorance of the status of her relationship to God was in fact a severe blindness. This ignorance and blindness would lead to her being blindsided by God's justice. Israel's ignorance was not her only iniquity. Added to her ignorance was her immodesty. And here, because I'm an old soul at heart, I'm kind of using immodesty in the sense that uh, Noah Webster would have used in his 1828 dictionary. Immodesty, according to the older dictionaries and definitions, is, is defined as an exorbitant, unreasonable, and arrogant. It's a kind of prideful, open flouting with a, a lack of reserve or restraint which decency requires. And this is exactly what we see in verses 4 to 6, Israel's sinful indulgence. There's a kind of arrogant indulgence expressed in these verses. They're, they're lying on beds of ivory. They, they stretch themselves out on couches and live like entitled kings. They have fancy feasts. They live the empty lie of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Their, their God is their stomach. We know from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 14 verse 17 that that's not what the kingdom of God consists of. According to Paul, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Such an approach to life is incredibly short-sighted, living for today. And perhaps this is part of the reason why the people of Israel couldn't see that the day of the Lord was going to be a dreadful thing for them. 
Their sin and luxury had clouded their vision. That's what sin does. It blinds us as we go deeper into it. The comforts of this world can tempt us to view this world as our home. And this might be perhaps one of the most difficult struggles of our age. With the advance of science, technology, and innovation, we are prone and open to being taken captive by the things of this world. And make no mistake, the creativity which we have seen in our lifetime is astounding. It's an amazing gift and blessing of God. We should give thanks to God for the many scientific, medical, and technological advances that we have personally enjoyed. But that there is now an iPhone 6, and that there will be likely be an iPhone 7 in three weeks or three months, should tell us something. No one is ever finally and fully satisfied by the things of this world. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Don't let the temporary tempt you. You weren't meant to live simply for this moment. Oh, that we may be taken captive by the things that are above and may seek first God's kingdom. Instead of creating our own, let's be honest. Who can build a better kingdom than God? Don't try to build a paltry kingdom in this world. It's only going to break down and fail and disappoint you. Whereas God's kingdom shall have no end. Children, we are, are entering into a season in which our culture will especially call you to consider how earthly possessions can serve you. As the catalogs arrive in the mail and Christmas wish lists your friends share with you call you to consider the temporary, I want to encourage you to ask your parents how you can be captivated by the eternal. Gaining earthly treasures may satisfy you for a day or a week or maybe even a month, but God's kingdom endures forever. He is the treasure which can never be lost and will never cease to delight those who trust in Him. Let me encourage you to talk with your parents this afternoon or this evening about how you can take delight in Jesus Christ. Amos is most likely addressing the elite and wealthy in Israel. And we can see that they fill up on, what they fill up on is luxury and care. And they care really only for themselves. And notice he says, while Joseph is in ruin. See, Joseph is probably a synonym referring to their own nation. They, they can't see that their nation teeters on the edge of collapse, that many in their nation are poor and weak, that their fellow Israelites are in need of great care, and they could really care less. Because they, they've got everything that they need. Why, why do they need to worry about anyone else? They won't use their resources to come to the aid of their brother. Will we? The Apostle John asks a penetrating question in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. He asks, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you are weighing something you want versus something your brother needs, there's a difference between wants and needs, right? If you're weighing something that you want versus something your brother or sister truly needs, then you need to break your scale and throw it away. As a congregation, we need to be sure that we are using the provisions and resources that the Lord calls us to be stewards over to make sure that we're caring for His people, the people whom we have covenanted to love and care for and walk with. Israel's immodesty, their, their pride and their arrogance not only comes through their sinful self-indulgence, but it also comes through in their attitude of self-importance and self-sufficiency. 
If you take a look at verse 13, uh, you'll notice that they think that it was because of their own strength and wisdom that they captured Carnian. Uh, they proclaim that this is something that we've done in our own strength. If you were to go back and read through virtually every battle in the Old Testament, every war battle in the Old Testament, you would notice that whenever Israel wins a battle, it's always because of the Lord's strength. In fact, whenever Israel went into battle on their own, they failed spectacularly. Israel is eternally incapable of winning a military victory without the Lord. So this claim is the height of arrogance and immodesty. And did you notice how verse 13 ends too? It ends with the words, for ourselves. How appropriate for a people who are so self-absorbed. As a congregation, let's be on guard against pride and immodesty in this regard too. What the Lord has done in our congregation is amazing. He has, in His kindness, revitalized our congregation in new and wonderful ways. Uh, some have publicly declared their faith through baptism. Others are growing up into Christ's likeness. The Lord is growing us. God has restored some parts of our building. Other parts may get restored soon. Um, but let's make sure that we never say, look what we have done in our own strength. Let's be sure to always say, look what the Lord has done. In modesty and humility, we ought to give all praise, glory, and honor to our God for His marvelous deeds. Now, we should hardly be surprised that an indulgent, immodest Israel would also be given to injustice. In the middle of verse 12, we're told something that we've already been told in the book of Amos, that Israel turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Amos made this point in chapter 5, verse 7. Justice should have been an, uh, a healing balm to the innocent. Instead, it had become a deadly poison. The innocent would seek the system of justice for relief. That's what they should do. They should seek the system of justice for relief and rest. But instead, what happened was the wicked and wealthy had so corrupted the system of justice, the innocent were met with bitterness and burden. That's what we're meant to understand from this reference to wormwood, actually. Wormwood is a bitter plant. That's what the innocent received. Israel was marked by ignorance, immodesty, injustice, and one more thing, idolatry. We skipped over this in chapter 5, but I want to return to it now. Because while the ignorance, immodesty, and justice are sins worthy of judgment, this sin, the sin of idolatry, is the sin which is so closely tied to Jehovah's judgment. Take a look there at Amos chapter 5, verses 26, 25 and 26. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikkoth, your king, and Kenyon, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. Amos, he asks Israel a question there in verse 25. Did they bring God their worship in the wilderness? The answer is yes. But then, then in verse 26, there's this sharp transition. Amos immediately starts talking about foreign kings and foreign gods. King Sikkoth is really the Assyrian war god. And uh, Kenyon is the star god. And the, the reason why Amos juxtaposes Israel's worship of God in the wilderness in verse 25 with Israel's worship of false gods in verse 26 is to show them just how far they've come. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Not only this was a violation of the first, second, and third commandment, it was also utter folly. Really, Israel, are, are you really going to worship something that you've made instead of the one who made you? 
You know, we, we worship idols just like Israel too. Uh, we worship idols whenever we place anything or anyone above God. We begin to worship created things rather than the Creator. We worship things with our hands too. We need to be aware that we too are idolaters and need to be rescued and saved by Jesus Christ. Well, having considered Israel's ignorance as well as her immodesty, injustice, and idolatry, let's turn now and consider our second point, Jehovah's judgment. What is God's response to Israel's ignorance and her iniquity? Read Amos chapter 5, verse 20 now. Amos 5, verse 20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? After having told the people of Israel what the day of the Lord means for them, Amos wants them to internalize this truth. That's why he asks a question. His question is meant to invoke introspection for them to consider their hearts and lives and consider what they deserve. Have they lived in covenant faithfulness to God as they swore to do on Mount Sinai? No. Well, then the day of the Lord for them means judgment, darkness, and gloom. Chapter 5, verse 27 tells us the nature of that judgment. The Lord says to His people, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. In response to Israel's sin, the Lord will thrust the people of Israel out of the promised land of Canaan, just like He thrust Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Now, I went back and looked through all of the references to the exile and the nature of the exile in the book of Amos up to this point that we've studied so far. I found at least nine references to the exile and what, the exile, what will happen in the exile. Uh, let me just walk through them now so we get a sense of what's taking place. In Amos chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, Israel's army is promised a sure defeat. In chapter 3, verse 11, we're told that an adversary will surround the land. In other words, a massive army will attack the nation. Israel's strongholds and defenses will be plundered and torn down. Chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that their prized possessions will be ruined. In chapter 3, verse 13, Israel's places of worship will be destroyed. In 3.15, their luxurious houses will be crushed. In 4.2, they will be forcefully dragged out of their homes. In 4.3, they will be led out of their cities through the very holes that the opposing armies made in their siege. How embarrassing to be led out through the defenses that you are putting your trust in. In chapter 5, verse 3, we're told that their army would be so totally decimated that barely 10% of them would come back from battle. It's no surprise then in chapter 5, verse 16, that we're told that when these things take place, there will be wailing, there will be grief. The exile that Amos predicted was to be a comprehensive devastation, not just of a city here or there, but of an entire nation. And that's exactly what Israel went through just a few years later. What's more, Amos tells us the cause. He has directly linked the disaster that Israel is to undergo to Israel's depravity. Look at Amos chapter 6, verse 7. Just after Amos has mentioned Israel's ignorance and immodesty and depravity in the first six verses of this chapter, in verses 6 to 11, Amos says this. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. 
And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relatives, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. That scene there of somebody in the innermost parts of the house, that's a person hiding. Because they don't want to be pulled out and taken away. They recognize this is, this is devastating. And what's more terrifying than the promise of exile? The fact that the God who keeps His promises commits Himself to keeping this promise. Look again at verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by Himself. He can't swear by anyone higher. He's sworn by Himself. He declares it to be so. <clears throat> Yahweh, Jehovah, is committed to this judgment. Now look down at verse 14 of chapter 6. And listen to the certainty of this verse. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lobah, Hamath, Hamath to the brook of Arba. These, these geographical markers tell us that from the places in the far north to the places in the far south, Israel would be oppressed. In other words, the opposing army that was coming would seek and accomplish a total conquest. That this judgment is coming is not in doubt. And that the invasion and exile will be successful is not in doubt either. The people of Israel know that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And they have presumed upon His grace and loving kindness toward them. They have forgotten that their freedom from slavery in Egypt did not mean that they were free to live in any way that they chose. If this was true of them, how much more is it true of us who have been set free from slavery to sin? God set Israel free from slavery so that they might worship, honor, and glorify, and live to the praise of His name. God set them and us free, not so that they and we could set up their own kingdoms and our own little lavish kingdoms, but so that the world might know what it means to live under God's rule as the king of the universe. And as I thought about this passage and meditated on it, I tried to think about how this would strike the ears of the people of Israel. As they listened to Amos, they should have been struck with a sense of urgency. They should have thought to themselves, the day of the Lord is coming. We need to repent and see our relationship with the Lord restored. And I think there is even a call to repentance in this passage. If you look at Amos chapter 5, verse 24, I think you'll see it. In Amos chapter 5, verse 24, we read, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is not an aspect of Jehovah's judgment. This is the proper response to His threat of judgment. And in fact, it is a command from God. God is calling for a change to take place. No longer were the people of Israel to be unjust. No longer were they to oppress the poor. Instead, they were to help the poor. No longer were they to pursue sexual immorality and idolatry. Instead, they were to honor the law of God. And so it was. So it is with righteousness too. Instead of unrighteousness flowing out of the hearts of the people of Israel, God called for righteousness to pervade their hearts and lives. 
And the language of verse 24 is interesting too. Commentators point out that this rolling down and this ever flowing, these are images of abundance and perpetuity. Justice and righteousness are to mark the lives of the people of God in abundant and continual ongoing measure. This was to be an ongoing pervasive reality in the lives of God's people. But how could this be? Spiritually speaking, Israel had to be changed and to change. And this could only be through God-given repentance. And the same is true for us too. Why was this message of repentance urgent then? Well, because the day of the Lord was coming. Why is this message of repentance urgent now? Because the day of the Lord is coming. See, earlier I, I mentioned that the promise of the day of the Lord is fulfilled on kind of multiple horizons. Sometimes the day of the Lord can be a day of victory for the Lord on a, on a near horizon, such as that in the book of Amos. This day of the Lord that Amos spoke about was fulfilled in 722 B.C. when the Assyrian army swept the people of Israel away, just as Amos prophesied, swept them away into exile. Amos' prophecy of the day of the Lord and the other prophets in the Old Testament also has another horizon of fulfillment too, an eschatological horizon, a final horizon. If the day of the Lord that the people of Israel experienced in the exile was like a hand grenade in history, then the final day of the Lord is like a worldwide atomic bomb, which brings history as we know it to its close. The day of the Lord in Israel's history was like a warning shot to those of us who live in the last days, as the New Testament apostles taught us. In other words, there is a kind of telescoping effect that takes place place in the scriptures concerning this concept of the day of the Lord. We see this telescoping effect in Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 21. The apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 he was, he was preaching and he said that the day of the Lord was still yet to come that it was still a day in advance and that this and, and that he pointed to the outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost as proof that the last days had begun. And that this had to take place, this outpouring of the Spirit, had to take place before the day of the Lord. In other words, there was a final judgment that was coming. In short, the next day of the Lord will be the last day of the Lord. This underscores for us all the urgent need for repentance. When that day comes, there will be no more opportunities to repent. After Peter said that the day of the Lord was coming, do you know what he did? You know what Peter did? He immediately turned around and he preached a sermon calling sinners to repent. He called them to repent and be restored to a right relationship to God through forgiveness. Because otherwise, the day of the Lord would be a day of judgment. It would be a day of darkness and gloom for all of those who are not in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone here today needs to heed Amos and Peter's calls to repent. If we do not, we will be surprised by darkness and gloom. We need to repent because we have sinned against the God who made us. The God who has an authoritative claim on our lives as the author of our lives. Like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, we have all sinned against God. We have decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And in this way, we are far too much like Israel. Living self-indulgent, self-focused, self-centered, self-ruling lives. God, and God alone, is to receive all of our love, service, honor, and glory. 
And because of our sin, we all stand in danger of facing God's wrath. We are in danger not of being exiled from the land in which we live, but of being exiled from God's loving presence in the promised land of heaven. This is the danger that we all face on the coming day of the Lord. But, in love, God has made a way into His heavenly land. He has provided the means by which we may not be shut out, but received in. In love, God sent His one and only begotten Son to earth. Jesus drew near to us when we had run so far from Him. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He was not ignorant of God's will or way. He was not prideful or immodest. He was perfectly just and generous. He never bowed down before any other gods, nor gave His worship to anyone or anything other than God the Father. He did not reject God's ways and live His own way. No, unlike you and me and everyone else who has ever lived, Jesus was sinless. And this, this is what qualified Him to be our suitable, sinless, and sympathetic Savior. He lived this life for sinners like you and me. And then He gave it up on the cross. Jesus died. He died on the cross taking upon Himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. On the cross, He experienced an exile of sorts when He was forsaken by the Father. He underwent that so that all repentant sinners wouldn't have to. After being exiled from the land of the living, as the prophet Isaiah said, three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repentant sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now all, all who turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ have nothing to fear. No exile lies ahead of them, for them, on the day of the Lord, because Jesus paid the penalty that was due to our sin and underwent that exile for us. Friends, Jesus now calls us to repent of our willful ignorance, of our prideful immodesty, of our sinful injustice, and of our idolatry. In other words, He calls us to stop living for ourselves and instead to live for Him. And I want to urge you to turn from your sins now and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone and be saved. And if you want to know more about this good news, that through Jesus we no longer have any need to fear the day of the Lord, then please do come and find me after the service. I'll be at that door at the back. Talk with your friend or family member that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important or glorious or joyful that you can think about on this day and every day that the Lord gives you life and breath that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And as we conclude, I want us to think once more about what this means for Christians. One of the surprising things that takes place in the New Testament, and perhaps it shouldn't be so surprising to us, is that Christians long for the day of the Lord. They, they desire it. That's a stark contrast with what Amos was telling the people of the Old Testament, wasn't it? Amos told unrepentant, ignorant Israel, you don't want the day of the Lord to come. You don't want Jehovah's judgment because it's a day of darkness and gloom for you. But the New Testament writers... They say different things. We, we hear phrases like this. Paul saying in Titus chapter 2 verse 13. They were actually waiting. Positively waiting. 
for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And then the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why? The Apostle John, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 and 3, says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see Him. What good news for us who've sinned against Him. He's come for us. This is why these men are so joyful about the coming day of the Lord. They're not at all afraid of the day of the Lord. Instead, they sound like men who are anxious, positively desirous of that day. And the Apostle John, he pushes it one step further. What he positively calls for that day to come at the end of the New Testament. He writes in Revelation 22, 20. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Are you looking forward to that day when he comes? Brothers and sisters, through repentance and faith in our Savior Jesus Christ, we can join our voices with the apostles and say, Come, Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord is not a day of dread for us. And if that day is not something that we need to fear because of the work of Jesus Christ, then this day and every other day on this earth is not a day that we should fear. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your Savior. For those who turn from their sins and rest in Christ's work on their behalf, the day of the Lord has been turned from darkness and gloom to light and life. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we confess that sometimes it's hard to read because we are confronted with our own sinfulness and iniquity in it. Oh Lord, we see ourselves too often in Israel's history. We see our own wickedness and depravity. And Lord, we give you thanks that your word is not just one of confrontation but one of comfort too. That we hear that our Lord has come and given His life for us, that He's been exiled so that we don't have to be, and that He's come, and that He's coming again for us. Well, Lord, we give You thanks for Your Word. We give You praise that Jesus has done all of this for us, and that He's given us reason to have nothing to fear, and so we pray and ask, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our next song is entitled, All I Have is Christ. And it can be found on the insert in your bulletins. Let me encourage you to go ahead and pull that insert out.